Hello and welcome to the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike. I really want to thank you for tuning in, and I am so excited to share information with you that will help you succeed inside and outside of your practice. The format of this podcast is a bit different from other podcast content you may have consumed. First, it's in audio and video, and you can find it on your favorite listening apps as well as on YouTube, Locals, and Rumble. Because it's in video, I can include text and images to enhance the learning experience of the viewers. I will also do my best to explain what I'm showing so that those listeners consuming audio-only content won't be left in the dark. I will also mix solo episodes where we explore a specific topic like today with episodes where I have a guest. This format will allow us to provide more information and dive deeper into certain concepts and techniques to increase the value to you, our viewers and listeners. So without further ado, let's get started with today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about the value of CBCT in today's orthodontic practice. I'm really excited to bring you today's content because I am super passionate about this topic. As some of you already know, I am a huge believer in the value of 3D imaging. Today, we're going to take a deeper look into the value of that 3D imaging and talk about some of the reasons why orthodontists seem to shy away from incorporating it into their practices. For a more comprehensive review of this topic, I do have a CE course on the DOC website at theorthocoach.com. It's titled Phase 1 Arch Development Part 2, Diagnosis, Both Clinical and CBCT, and Treatment Planning. And as a reminder, DOC is an ADA SERP recognized provider. I also want to make it known that I am not a KOL for any CBCT company, and I don't receive compensation from any CBCT manufacturer. I personally use the iCat Flex, and I was very happy with that machine, but I have no ties or fi- financially or otherwise to that or any other company. So let's start by talking about five common myths. The use of CBCT in the orthodontic office are associated with that use that will be dispelled in today's podcast. Number one, that CBCT delivers more radiation than 2D imaging. Number two, CBCT images don't provide diagnostic advantage over 2D imaging. Number three, a CBCT image should not be taken on every patient and should only be used to look more closely at something that was detected in a 2D image. Number four, taking CBCT images increases your liability, so all CBCT images must be read by an oral and maxillofacial radiologist. Number five, there is no tangible ROI. Before we get into breaking down these myths, let's discuss the evolution of cephalometric imaging in orthodontics to give us some perspective. Most of us are aware of the fact that Wilhelm Rankin developed the first x-rays, x-rays back in 1917. However, many don't know that it was actually in 1922 when a gentleman by the name of Spencer Atkinson gave a lecture at the Angle College where he discussed a rentinogram of the cranium. B. Holly Broadbent, and for those of you out there, the gurus might know that the B stands for Birdsall, was actually a student at the Angle College who attended Atkinson's lecture. 
After hearing the lecture, he joined with surgeon-turned-anatomist T. Wingate Todd to develop the Western Reserve Ranktonographic Craniostat, which allowed for standardized lateral and AP planar radiographs of the human skull. This device would be refined to become the Broadbent Bolton cephalometer in 1931. Interesting and a key point is that this was technically a 3D image. They used separate images of the lateral and frontal views without the subject head moving, which required two x-ray heads. They then used this data to mathematically derive, you guessed it, 3D measurements. They understood the importance of 3D. In addition, the concept of using x-rays to analyze the skull actually took almost 30 years to gain acceptance in the field. An analogy can certainly be drawn to today's resistance to accepting 3D imaging. Now, you may be wondering why we went from the two-head design to the one-head design that's commonplace today. The answer may surprise you, market forces. The two-head design wasn't cost-effective or practical from a space perspective, so docs weren't purchasing it. Companies decided to sell one x-ray source and had practitioners use that x-ray source to take two separate images, turning the patient's head to get, be able to get the lateral and AP views. The problem was, while you got the images, the movement of the subject head and the subsequent inability to mathematically derive 3D measurements eliminated the whole benefit of the 3D analysis. By the mid-20th century, the lateral CEPH was the standard radiograph taken for ortho purposes on a single machine in the orthodontic office. Now, let's get into a little bit of discussion about CT imaging. So, CT, or computed tomography, was first pioneered by Ambrose and Hounsfeld in 1973. At that point, it wasn't practical for dentistry because radiation levels were way too high, voxel size was too small, and it really wasn't possible to get a good view of dental structures. Then CBCT, or cone beam computed tomography, was introduced in the early 21st century. It uses a cone-shaped beam, hence the name, rather than a fan-shaped beam of a traditional CT scan, which allowed it to use far less radiation than a medical CT. The first machines for use in the dental office were sold in the early 2000s between 2001 and 2004 and they provided a one-to-one -one 3D view of the craniofacial structures with far more detail than a traditional pan and ceph. But they were very costly, and even though it was much less radiation than a medical CT, it was still much more radiation than a traditional pan and ceph. But in 2013, that all changed. Manufacturers combined partial rotation around the patient's head, low radiation settings, and pulse technology, where radiation only happens when images are being taken, to create a CBCT image that delivered less radiation than a 2D pan. So let's break down each of the five previously stated myths. We'll start with radiation levels. So how much radiation does a CBCT image deliver? Well, a medical CT of the head delivers approximately 2,000 microsieverts. And interestingly, many studies done on this use the high dose of a medical CT to kind of scare practitioners and the public into thinking that CBCT delivers similar levels of radiation. It's not true. It's a totally different thing. A digital pan, uh, film is even higher than digital, delivers about 20 to 25 microsieverts. Digital CEPHs about 5 to 10 microsieverts. A low-dose CBCT, by contrast, can be taken in a, for approximately 10 to 20 microsieverts, depending on the field of view that you use. So that means that a low-dose 3D image is actually half to a third the radiation of 2D imaging 
even less if you're someone that's using traditional 2D, or traditional film in your 2D image. Now, of course, you can take images at much higher radiation levels if you need to see certain structures more clearly. Um, but this setting is plenty sufficient for 99% of your patients. In my practice, the exception was always certain craniofacial cases and complex adult restorative cases. So you can clearly see that it's not an, ad, an accurate statement to state that taking routine CBCT images delivers excessive and unnecessary amounts of radiation. On to number two, diagnostic value. The standard is that we should only take images that we will diagnose, and I completely agree with that. But some say that when we take a CBCT, we obtain unnecessary information beyond what we need to formulate a diagnosis and treatment plan. That I disagree with. Let's look at just a few examples of what is visible in 3D that is not visible in 2D to see if you feel that it's too much information in 3D. So here we have a 2D construct um, of our 3D image and the patient was seen at, the new pa at a new patient exam. We can notice that the upper right three looks a bit ectopic. So you notice that, right? It's starting to cross over the root of the lateral. We're used to seeing that. It is resorbing the upper right C, so not necessarily anything that we're super concerned about, uh, at least in the 2D image. But it's impossible to determine the exact location of this tooth in 2D. So let's see the what the difference in that is if we were to, uh, to look at a 3D image here. And if we look in the upper right, what you'll notice there is that canine completely palatal to uh, what is the um, upper right two right here. So again, really hard to appreciate that in full two, in 2D, but in full 3D, look at that, completely behind that tooth. So we might, look, going back, we might look at that in 2D and be like, oh, you know, it's coming down. The root of the upper right C is resorbing. I think we'll be fine. Um, maybe you even send them for extraction of the upper right C, uh, but tell the parents, yeah, I'm not too worried that tooth should be coming down. But if you look in 3D, you want to prepare these parents and the patient for the fact that that may end up needing surgical exposure, or you may end up actually wanting to expose it at the time that the upper right C is removed, preventing a second surgical procedure. So again, you can see just how much of a difference a simple, uh, in a simple situation like this it makes. Let's look at another one. So this patient, if we look at the upper threes, again, on the 2D image, nothing too remarkable, especially on the right. On the left, maybe it's crossing over a little bit, so we start to get a little more concerned, but it seems to be resorbing uh, primary tooth H. But let's see what we uh, can see when we look at our 3D slices. So here's the patient's right side and the patient's left side. On the patient's right side, that tooth you can actually appreciate now is completely palatal to primary tooth C. And on the left side, it is completely palatable primary tooth H and now heading behind the upper left lateral incisor. That is a big difference from what we thought we were looking at when we looked at the 2D pan. If we look at an occlusal view, here's the patient's right and left, you can see just how palatal those teeth are. So again, this now tells us we definitely want to send the patient for removal of the primary cuspids as well as prepare them for the fact that these teeth may end up being impacted. And whether or not we make the decision to do any exposure or anything at this point, obviously would be a different conversation. But at the very least, you have increased diagnostic uh, information that you can pass along to and share with the patient and their family. Another patient. Looking at the pan, I just want you to take a moment and just kind of take a look at it. Just kind of look at what you think that pan, what you see, if you see anything remarkable, unremarkable. Um, obviously, we've got some crowding of the left canine. 
Um, but anything you notice, I'll give you another hint. Do you think you can see any teeth that are kind of blocked by other teeth that may be preventing the eruption? Let's take a look at what we see in 3D. That's an occlusal view looking up at the occlusal. So here are the occlusal surfaces of the upper permanent second molars. And what we see is we've got permanent third molars blocking their eruption. There is no way you can determine that from that 2D image alone. You never would have known. Never would have known. Now we were able to actually have the oral surgeon go in and remove the uh, uh, wisdom teeth that were developing and allow the 12-year-old molars to develop and erupt. Who knows if we had left them like this, how delayed that development and eruption would have been of those 12-year-old uh, molars causing significant issues down the road. Here's a patient, uh, you can see those upper canines don't look like they're in a great spot relative to the laterals in the 2D construct. But again, really tough to understand what's really going on. You have a hard time at this point educating the parents and explaining to the parents and the patient just what the prognosis is of this situation. Even if you remove the primary cuspids, it's really hard to determine uh, just from a 2D image. But let's look in 3D. Here you go. So. Top, we have the patient's right and left, and then here we have a frontal view. If we look at the patient's right, you can see that that upper right canine, number six, is on top of number seven on the root. And so, same thing is happening on the opposite side. And if we look here from the front, you can see where those teeth are literally resting labially on top of the roots of those laterals. Again, back to 2D. Could you have appreciated that to that extent in that image? No, there's absolutely no way. So again, that increase in diagnostic value of that third dimension is really, really valuable. And again, that was her initial. This incidentally is actually how she looked after I did phase one. So again, just to go back, this is where those teeth were. And we did phase one on her. Did not even have to remove the primary canines. You can see H is still there. C had now naturally exfoliated, and that's how much space, and that's how the, T, the canines, which I'll be teaching you in, there, there's significant content in, on the DOC website in the CE courses that I've referenced, as well as future podcasts, we'll be talking more about this. But the, the amazing approach I have, you can see her anterior crossbite is gone, as is her posterior crossbite, and the canines are now erupting nicely without ever having to even extract any primary teeth. Um, and we did not use expanders to do this. So giving you a little, little bit, or for those, those of you who have taken the courses, you know what I'm talking about. For those who haven't, uh, you've got some cool things that are going to be, uh, to be coming your way. So in this patient, you can see that upper left eight is blocking the upper left seven, right? But does anything look atypical on the right side? Would you be concerned on the right side at all? Well, let's look. The upper right eight's blocking the upper right seven as well. It's just superimposed in the image, so you can't really appreciate it. So again, you send this patient for this procedure. Let's say that the oral surgeon doesn't take a separate image. Uh, it's a 2D, and they go in, and they go to remove this tooth, uh, and then you find out, 
I don't know, next time you take an image or a radiograph that it's happening on the other side as well. Or maybe what would happen is the upper left seven would be descending and the upper right wouldn't. So you'd be going, why is that upper right seven not descending in line with the upper left? Take an image and maybe at that point you could see it or had to have to refer for a 3D. But again, why wouldn't you want to see this for the first time? And this gets into the discussion we, we were having about the value of doing this now versus saying, I'll take the 2D image and then look at what the 3D image or look at what I see and then take a 3D image as needed. You wouldn't necessarily do that in this particular case if you thought you knew what was going on from that tooth being there. And if you did, let's say you decided to say, well, you know, I, I want to get a closer view or exact view of where that uh, number 16 is relative to 15. Number one, you may not even look at the other side at that point. And number two, if you do, you've just exposed the patient to significantly more radiation than you could have. And all these images I'm showing you are at the low dose setting, the lowest dose setting on the machine. So in that 10 to 20 microsievert range. Uh, here you can see the canines, a um, little bit odd looking, and you can see the ankylose primary molars missing the lower, or all the fives, excuse me. Um, so you're already thinking, you know, with the, with the missing teeth, the ankylose teeth, there's definitely a higher risk of impaction, but you know, it doesn't look like it's horribly out of the ordinary where those permanent canines are descending the upper canines, but let's take, take a look. So here you go. Here are the upper canines, completely labial to the primary predecessors, and number 11 is actually palatal, significantly palatal to number 10. And you just cannot appreciate that in a 2D image. And you look at this, and it almost doesn't even look like it's the same case. I mean, clearly, if you look at you can't see the fives, and you know, it is, but it's just, it's just amazing to see what you can see. And that's what Anybody I've talked to who has 3D loves 3D. I mean, it is, I'm not saying no one, but it is pretty hard pressed to find someone who invested in 3D technology and uses it the right way and understands how to use it and, and apply, apply it to improve their diagnostic ability. They love it. They love it. They don't know how, they, I, I, I would say, and most others say, I don't know how I ever practiced without it. I certainly wasn't as good of a practitioner without it. If we look at her occlusals, here's the upper here, here's the lower. So not only are those upper threes significantly palatal, but look at the lower. We never would have known that, right? Never would have known those lower threes were in such a tough position. If we go back, look at the lower canines. It just looks kind of they're coming up. If we look maybe now that we know that, we can kind of see a superimposition of the root, uh, especially on the left side there, for the lower left C with the lower left three. But would you have known that they were that much in lingual version? Probably not. So now when you send this patient, if you're going to send for extraction of the upper C's, you get the lower C's out as well and avoid her another surgery. This patient, the upper threes, again, look a bit measly inclined, but nothing too out of the ordinary, right? It's not like you would look at this and be like, oh my gosh, that patient's canines are impacted. Um, but if you look at it in 3D, so this is a slice that you can see uh, sliced at the level basically of the primary canine. So here's the primary right canine, primary left canine. Here are those permanent canines, completely palatal to the primary canines. And here you can see in this frontal view with those teeth behind like that. So again, it is so valuable because you just can't appreciate the extent of this uh, and even if you did send the patient for the removal of the primary canines off of this pan, let's say you did, which I don't even know if I would have really, I don't think I would have, because um, they're certainly not crossing over the laterals in the 2D image, you still can't prepare the patient and the parent for the fact that there is a 
decent chance those teeth might end up being impacted anyway, uh, as opposed to the fact that now you can see that they, they, they would potentially be and you want to alert them as, as to that. Here you can see that upper right three is definitely in trouble. You'll notice the upper right five looks like it's rotated 90 degrees. Uh, the upper left four five, something's not quite right there. Um, separate issue that lower canine isn't developing normally. This is actually a great case. So it's a, it, was a, it was a fun, interesting case to treat and treat it out beautifully. But from th a 2D perspective, these are the ones you look at in 2D and you're like, whoa, what is going on? Like, how am I going to put the pieces of this together? Do we take into, do I send it to the primary care dentist to take periapicals if you don't have a, a periapical or an ability to take periapical and bite wing x-rays? So kind of looking at it going, I don't really know what's going on. Those of you who take this in 2D and then 3D would probably now take a 3D, but again, you're exposing the patient to significantly more radiation unnecessarily because you could have determined that just off of the first image. Because what we see when we look at this patient, if we look at the right side and the left side, there's that right canine completely palatal to the C. The left canine though, which doesn't look too bad in the 2D is actually significantly off, right? It is not in a good spot relative to that other canine. So, if we notice where the, that discrepancy is, uh, now we have a much better handle on what, we, what we're facing and what we need to do and just how ectopic those canines are. If we, this is her same patient, if we look here, we can actually get a really good appreciation for the relationship of the four, the five on the left side and the five on the right side, which yes, that upper right five is rotated 90 degrees. It's also significantly palatal. So we might have said here, well, maybe we just let this tooth continue to erupt because even though it's rotated, it'll start to force out the primary predecessor. Now we know it won't, neither will the other side. So now when we send the patient for extraction of C and H, we also may want to consider sending for extraction of A and J. Again, think of how this changes your diagnostic approach. Think of how this changes how accurate you are as a practitioner. In, there's no way you would have known this in a 2D image and been able to make those treatment decisions that you can make so easily if you can see it in 3D, which makes sense because we're adding another dimension, right? And it's an entirely new dimension. And not just that, but now not only do you have the other dimension, but you can manipulate the image to be able to see things in planes of space that you simply couldn't see before. You can go into the sagittal, axial, coronal planes easily in the software of any of these programs and figure that out. And this ultimately makes you a better diagnostician and therefore a better orthodontist. And then there's the ability to view the airway. If you've taken any of the Doc CE courses that deal with airway, you already know the tremendous value of 3D imaging to help diagnose a patient's airway issues. But to summarize, 2D imaging doesn't let you get any visualization of the patient's nasal passageways and sinuses and only a very limited view of the pharyngeal airway. 3D, by contrast, is beyond amazing. And I could sit here and tell you about it literally all day. But I feel you seeing some examples for yourself will be much more valuable and impactful. So let's dive deeper into some of what you can see in 3D that's not visible in 2D. 
To begin, we'll just do a little review of normal, normal turbinate anatomy. Uh, so you have our inferior, middle, and superior turbinates. The superior, oftentimes difficult to see. These are the ethmoids up here in your maxillary sinuses. So when you look into the nasal passageway, what you want to see is you want to see nice patency where you can see, I explained it to the parents and the patients as where you can see the dark black, it means air can flow. So it's a really easy way for them to understand that because as you get more and where there's gray or white, it can't go. So it's just a really easy way to explain it so people can understand it. Uh, so you want to see obviously sinuses that are symmetrical, even, appropriate size and uh, turbinates that aren't heavily inflamed, and we're going to go through examples of when this isn't the case. Uh, just for note, pe many people don't realize this, but the turbinates have a very specific purpose, and that's to filter, moisten, warm, and humidify the air to help prepare it for the lungs. And about 50% of people have chronically inflamed turbinates, and turbinate hypertrophy is indicative oftentimes of allergies and or rhinitis. So we're going to show some examples of that. But one thing that's not it's technically turbinate hypertrophy, but not in the pathologic sense, is something called nasal cycling. So if you do start to look at these 3D images and you notice that one side, the turbinates or turbinate or turbinates are more significantly inflamed or hypertrophic than the other side, it's called nasal cycling. And that's where nasal airflow is greater in one nostril than in the other. And the greater airflow nostril shifts between left and right over time. It's apparent in all mammalian species. So it is a variation of normal. The first times I saw this, I would send it to the ENT uh, and they would be like, that's ah, actually just normal, it's nasal cycling. It's, it's a normal, um, normal phenomenon. So uh, it's actually, I find this interesting, it's fascinating to me, but it's related to the autonomic nervous system uh, in that unilateral sympathetic dominance is associated with vasoconstriction and decongestion in one nostril, while simultaneous parasympathetic dominance is associated with vasodilation and congestion in the other nostril. So again, fascinating stuff, it's neat to see. And again, we talk about the value add. When you can look at this, and tell your parent, the, your patient and their parents, like, oh, you know, because they're going to notice the asymmetry right away. People detect asymmetries easily. You can just say, oh, well, this is actually a variation of normal. It's something, the fancy name is nasal cycling. And believe it or not, it goes from one side to the other. And you can say that's why you ever notice sometimes during the day, like your right side feels plugged and then your left side feels plugged. You're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's why. That's why. So uh, it's cool. And, and again, this just subtly builds confidence uh, in you as a diagnostician uh, and uh, ultimately clinician because they, people know that you know what you're talking about. Here's another example of nasal cycling, a little more subtle. Another one, this is the right side that is enlarged at that point. So again, variation of normal. Just as an aside too, we're talking about the airway, but just look at the, what you can detect in these slices uh, of the, the palate, the architecture, the vault of the palate, the tongue space, inclination of the teeth, such a value add versus a 2D where you, you I mean, in a pan and a staff, you, you don't know any of this. Mucus retention phenomenon. So this is a, an interesting one. These are these sort of uh, little globular uh, shaped opacity down in, it could be down up throughout the maxillary sinus. This patient you also notice has bilateral, bilateral turbinate hypertrophy, but uh, you can, and a high vaulted palate, insufficient space for the tongue, it can't sit up into the palatal vault. So again, a lot of the things that we talk about and look at, not an accident, they have a posterior crossbite. This is where it all starts to come together. And in my lectures where I talk about how everything is in, interconnected and we talk about that a lot, uh, that is, this is a, a classic example of it. But to focus on the retention phenomenon, it's a common incidental 
incidental finding at a radiographic examination. So it's an incidental finding, char finding characterized by retention of mucus from the mucus glands of the epithelial lining of the maxillary sinus. Reported to occur between 1.4 and 9.6% of the general population, typically in asymptomatic, and the pathogenesis is undefined but strongly related to allergic, inflammatory, and infectious processes, trauma, humidity, and room temperature. Okay, so again, you can just look at that. Patients, parents will have sometimes be like, what's that thing? And I proactively explain to them, oh, that's just a variation of normal. It's like a little cyst within our sinuses that we get. And oftentimes that tips me off. Maybe this child is suffering from allergies. In this particular case, they were a significant allergy sufferer. And you can tell by the inflamed and hypertrophic turbinates. And that is a sign. So I, I would see that a lot in patients who are more prone to allergies. And that was something that would help me, again, diagnose and make the appropriate referral to an allergist when I would see things like this. But if everything else looks normal and they just have an isolated mucus retention phenomenon, obviously it's nothing to even get concerned about at all. Here's one on the left side. You can see in the different slices, you can see where that, how that presents. They can be pretty large, but again, I would just ask the patient, do you ever feel a lot of pressure on that side? Does it ever feel different than the other side? And 99% you know, of the time they say no, they don't even know it's there, and you know, the kids just kind of shrug their shoulders like, I don't think so, and, and so you don't worry about it. A deviated septum. So uh, the most common cause of nas nasal obstruction is a deviated septum. It occurs in approximately 75% of modern humans. It's usually not an issue unless it becomes obstructive. It does, however, predispose the nasal epithelium to chronic inflammation and squamous metaplasia as a result of altered airflow. So you can see here, looking at the septum, you can see where it deviates first actually to the patient's left, then back to the right, and then back a little bit to straighten out. And you can see um, the septum here deep going down and deviating over to the left and down. So again, uh, able to appreciate this and just see that this patient is probably not breathing too well on the left side of their nose probably breathing pretty well on the right. And what I'll actually do, and I did in this case with, with David, is I said, go ahead and cover your right side for me and cover the right side of your nose. And I said, and breathe in, is it hard? And they're like, yeah, can't really breathe. Switch, he's like, I can breathe fine. And I said, can you typically be, breathe better out of your right than your left? Yeah, almost always. And then mom says, how did you know that? And so then you start to ask questions. And in this particular patient, I did send to refer because he said that they chronically can't breathe out of the left side of his nose. So that's something that the uh, ENT uh, and or allergist should be taking a look at. Here you can see the deviation over to the patient's right. And again, here's that deviation of that septum. Once again, if I go back and look at you can see the tongue posture, vault of the palate, all those cool things we can see, and another deviation of that septum there. Different patient. Turbinate hypertrophy. So if we look at the turbinate, the hypertrophy of the turbinates, um, and we kind of, and these coronal slices are nice because they really give us a nice cross-sectional view of what we're looking at here, but uh, perennial allergic rhinitis and non-allergic vasomotor rhinitis is, is really one of the primary things that is dealing with, that causes turbinate hypertrophy. A lot of times they'll treat them with antihistamines, just decongestants, decongestants, topical nasal steroid sprays, mast cell stabilizers, uh, mast cell stabilizers. Every now and again, surgery is indicated if these aforementioned treatments don't provide adequate relief. Um, 
that would be me. I ended up having a turbinectomy. If you look at me, my left inferior turbinate is basically gone, um, and uh, the right's all kind of carved away. So I, maybe that's why I, I have such a passion for airway and, and helping these patients and helping diagnose these issues young, because I didn't get mine diagnosed young. Obviously, this technology wasn't available then, and as a result, I ended up with very chronic problems with my sinuses and nasal passageways as I got into adulthood uh, and ended up having two sinus surgeries and all sorts of other problems and I still struggle with and, and manage and battle this to this day. So uh, if I can help patients get on top of this, young especially, I really believe I'm doing such a service to them by, before they build such chronic inflammation that requires very invasive surgery. Here's another example of turbinate hypertrophy. You can see those turbinates. There's just, again, when we go by the, the, the simplistic approach of if there's not black, you can't have air to go through. Um, that is that is what uh, e really easy to see. Also notice that sort of little heart-shaped tongue there. That's because the tongue is squished in. And if you don't take a coronal slice like this, I mean, if you're just looking at a sagittal like in a ceph, you can't appreciate that that is what is happening at all. You can't appreciate it at all. But now you're like, oh, well, maybe that tongue doesn't have enough space. And then they can't breathe through their nose because of their turbinate hypertrophy. And not that we're going into this part right now, but just to extrapolate that, uh, let's look and see. Well, maybe that tongue is occluding the airway in the oropharyngeal area. This is how we start to put the picture together to provide a superior service to our patients. And this is where, again, the indirect ROI that we'll be going over a little bit later in this podcast becomes so relevant. Another example of turbinate hypertrophy, the right more than the left, but both are. You can see minimal airway space down here in the inferior area there. And again, turbinate hypertrophy. So you'll see that often. And in my courses, I go into detail on how you handle this, the questions you ask the parents and the referrals you make. But this just starts the conversation, right? Uh, is Johnny always stuffy? Is it hard for Johnny to breathe through his nose? And this just starts to put together the picture of what's actually happening with this patient. Rhinitis, nasal inflammation and or dysfunction of the nasal mucosa, classified as allergic, infectious, and non-allergic, non-infectious. And it can extend into the infected, affect the sinuses, which is rhinosinusitis, which we're going to, they're kind of both conflated, uh, and we'll, we'll show some examples of each. So, um, if you notice the, the narrowing of the nasal passageways here, it's a little bit different than just kind of hypertrophy of the turbinates. They have generalized inflammation throughout the nasal passageways. And again, I'm not the diagnostician who's going to sit here and diagnose them with rhinitis. I'm not diagnosing them with turbinate. Well, I'm reporting the finding of turbinate hypertrophy, but I certainly don't diagnose them with rhinus, rhinitis or rhinosinusitis. I just let them know. And then you ask the questions and then, yeah, you know, they're always stuffy or they're always congested or they never can breathe through their nose or they get colds all the time. And um, so th that just opens the discussion. Now notice this patient has a posterior crossbite, uh, insufficient space for the tongue. So that's where it all again starts to tie together and in the courses we go into that in great detail. Another example you just see that inflammation throughout the nasal passageway once again narrow arch posterior crossbite high vaulted palate insufficient space for the tongue and maybe it could be because they can't breathe through their nose they're not growing as wide as we're as we've talked about right and that's one of the things that we go into in a lot of detail. In future podcasts, you'll, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the courses go into that in a lot, but the future podcasts coming up two and three will go into that in significantly more detail. So kind of keep these images in mind as we, as we go into those, those later podcasts.
You also notice you can see some mucus up in those ethmoids. Um, again, different than just isolated turbinate hypertrophy. You, you have a different look in there. And then it can expand into the sinuses, <clears throat> which is when it becomes a rhinosinusitis. So you've got the inflammation, the mucus buildup in the nasal passageways, as well as some rimming and mucus buildup in the maxillary sinuses. Um, and the def for, from definition standpoint, it's inflammation of both the paranasal sinuses and the sinonasal mucosa. Pathogenesis is multifactorial. Infectious, genetic, and environmental factors are at play, and it's often preceded by rhinitis and rarely occurs without rhinitis. Another example of rhinosinusitis. And I don't know, I mean, look at the asymmetry in the sinuses. And this isn't uh, an old patient. I mean, look at you, we've got the premolars developing. We've got that high vaulted palate, insufficient tongue space, obstruction in the nasal passageways, chronic breathing issue. That's why when people and our colleagues say things like, I actually had someone in one of our study groups one time when I was just talking about something relevant to airway, say I, that you lost me at airway. Why would we ever think that? I mean, it's directly connected to where we work. We work here, this is right above it. So the fact that we think that these two things aren't related when we've known for 100 years that they are, uh, really, it just, it just blows my mind. So we owe it to our patients and to our profession to look at them as more than just the teeth that we see coming and sitting in front of us in the chair. Again, mucus lining here, mucus in the maxillary sinuses, ethmoids are filled up, and the inflammation in the nasal passageways. Same, again, see all this. And when you see this, again, this is a young kid. This is what, look at the palate. Look at that high vaulted palate, insufficient space for the tongue. It all makes sense. And again, keep these images in mind as we... Uh, go through future podcasts. And for those of you consuming this on audio, please go ahead and take a moment when you get a chance, flip through, uh, go to the YouTube, the doc YouTube page and look through these images because it really is invaluable. And that's one of the things I want to do with this podcast is not just have conversation, but also provide video content so people can see things and really make them quite educational for the consumer. And again, there's more fluid in the sinuses, just showing you more. You can see the inflammation in the nasal passageways, just to give you an appreciation for what you're looking at when you see this. And now you're getting into almost a pan-sinusitis. This is a patient who, again, young kid, uh, this particular case, they had no idea. They had, because a lot of times these patients say, yeah, they're kind of a stuffy kid. They don't necessarily know. And, and the patient had significant headaches and um, they had been to the pediatrician and they, according to mom, hadn't really done much, um, said, oh, you know, they're just stuffy, they have some allergies, put them on some over-the-counter allergy medication. Well, I, I did this. I told mom, like, take a picture and either send or take this to your pediatrician and show them this is actually what's happening. I mean, if you look in the axial, you, you complete occlusion, these maxillary sinuses. I mean, it's, it's really profound. Uh, and they were, again, you talk about an indirect ROI. They were so appreciative when it turned out they ended up needing to go um, to the, the pediatrician ended up not being responsive and don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but I ended up sending them then to the allergist who put them on, actually had to go on a course of, of prednisone on corticosteroid, as well as topical nasal spray, as well as antibiotic. And within a few weeks, when I, had, uh, mom reached out to us and let us know that they had a different kid. And, uh, it, and that's, again, so powerful and so wonderful and so life-changing. Maxillary sinus hypoplasia. Sometimes you see it, it's sometimes it's kind of a variation of normal, but what it can be indicative of, again, look at how narrow this patient is, how high vaulted that palate is, 
It's often asymptomatic, and it's just underdevelopment or absence of, of one of or both uh, maxillary sinuses. Um, hypoplasia would be obviously the underdevelopment. Aplasia would be the absence, which we'll show in a moment. But it's, again, just indicative of a broader picture. If you have this younger child and they have this underdevelopment of one or both sinuses, maybe it's because they're not using them. Maybe it's because they're not developing as they're not taking air in. Notice little subtleties as well we can, we can see here uh, in the coronal slice is, is we've got the buck, large buccal corridors, right? That's again a sign that the arches are very, very narrow. They're not filling out into the full capacity of the oral cavity. And here's aplasia, where you'll actually see this is on the left side, complete absence of that sinus. Um, I, these patients, I, you make them aware of it. Um, I'd actually uh, been, this was a patient was interesting. I had been seeing him for about five and a half years. It was before I got my ICAT. And then when I got the ICAT, the patient came in. It was about three months after I had the machine. And I took a routine image and saw this and ended up referring them. And the, the parents were so grateful because it ended up being that he did have some underlying breathing problems. Again, this was before airway and breathing were really on my radar. And they were just super appreciative that I detected it. And they got into the care of an ENT who was able to help mitigate some of the problems the patient was having. And that's what we have the power to do. Uh, and and I, I really feel passionately and strongly that it's our responsibility to do this for our patients. Another case of maxillary sinus aplasia, this one is bilateral. Uh, interestingly, this patient's image was taken the same day as this patient's image. Now, you're not gonna see aplasia <laughs> often. I think I've seen it a few times ever in the, the, the tens of thousands of images I've taken. But uh, ironically, these two patients were in on the same day. This was another patient I'd uh, been seeing for four years, just on and off from between phases, had a phase one and was letting them grow. But this was uh, the pre-phase two evaluation and the first radiograph since I'd had a cone beam. And all of a sudden I realized he doesn't have maxillary sinuses. Same thing, sent him to the ENT, ended up finding out the patient had some significant airway problems. Put, the ENT put him on a, a nasal irrigation and Flonase, uh, tried to manage the uh, nasal passageway inflammation, and the uh, ENT told the parents, thank God I found this because long-term, this patient was headed on a course to some really severe problems from an airway perspective. So again, super powerful stuff. This is life-changing stuff. And, and this is not me just telling you stories to just try to impress you with some things I found. It's me trying to motivate you to want to do better for your patients so we can be better diagnosticians and clinicians. Silent sinus syndrome. Um, not going to go into a ton of detail, uh, but it's essentially spontaneous N, <laughs> easy for you to say, N ophthalmus and hypoglobus due to increased orbital volume and retraction of the orbital floor. So the N ophthalmus obviously is the recession, you know, sinking in of the eye. Um, typically, again, occurs unilaterally. It's um, the, and when you leave it untreated, it may result in complete obliteration of the sinus and worsening of the symptoms, and it's most common during the third to fifth decade of life. So you're not going to see this often. Uh, I have not ever seen it personally in any of my patients, but I just want you to be aware of it so that if you do invest in this technology, you can be aware of, of what you're looking for. Going down, to, down the airway a little bit into the uh, pharynx, you can see uh, this patient... Uh, interesting case and this patient uh, went to school with my daughter and I saw her at some school functions in like second grade 
And I'm like, oh my gosh. And my wife actually said to me, she's like, I hope she comes and sees you someday. Because you could just see the mouth. I mean, she just walked around with her mouth open and couldn't breathe and um, crowding of the teeth and all the signs that we're going to talk about in the next couple podcasts. And sure enough, they ended up coming in to see me. And uh, it means literally she's like intubating herself to breathe through her mouth. She has complete obstruction. Complete obstruction. There's absolutely no nasopharyngeal airway or patency in this young girl. Stop and think about the fact that the pediatricians aren't figuring this out. How could they neglect to be in tune with the fact that a patient is struggling and gasping for air? I don't understand it and I find it unacceptable. And uh, I've talked to pediatricians about this. I just, I don't understand why they don't think about airway. But then again, I guess the orthodontist, by and large, a lot of us are no different, right? We really don't want to get involved in the airway side of things either for, for whatever reason. But I'll tell you, when this patient walks in, instead of just saying, you're super crowded, we need to pull teeth or try to maintain space, or let's say you approach these with expansion, do expanders, and you say, hey, wait a minute, they have these breathing problems? And you start to ask them, it's not only life-changing for the patient and the parents. I mean, this mom in particular broke down in tears because she knew this child was suffering and she knew something was wrong with her and nobody would take the time to help them out. So here's a patient. Um, you can't really tell much about the airway in the, just the traditional sort of sagittal Ceph view. I mean, it might look like a little bit of enlargement of the, of the adenoids. Maybe you can see a little shadowing of some of the uh, tonsils there, but let's take a look in 3D. And if we look at the sagittal, you have your axial and your coronal. If we look and we put the, the crosshair there up into the nasopharynx, look at the size of those adenoids. Look at the enlargement. I ended up referring the patient to the NT. And then also you'll notice a lot of these patients have that upward head tilt, right? They have that upward head tilt. And people say, oh, you can't diagnose airway uh, using, uh, figure out anything on airway with a 3D because head posture is variable. Sure, it is variable. But sometimes the variability actually helps you understand what's going on. When patients are constantly like this, a lot of times it's to try to get patency of the airway, just like we do with a head tilt and CPR. But regardless of the head posture, there's the adenoids. You wouldn't have seen those. I mean, clearly you couldn't make those out on the 2D image, right? So it's so powerful. Sent this patient, turns out, patient had all sorts of breathing issues, sleep issues, school performance issues, went to the ENT, got the lymphoid tissue removed, complete resolution. Amazing. This is a coronal slice showing the palatine tonsils. So you can see them coming out um, and almost meeting in the midline. These aren't actually meeting in the midline. But then we have, uh, if you go off center, you can actually see them a little more indirectly, a little more directly. If you go at the midline, you, you can't always appreciate them. If you just kind of go to the midline, when you go to the sagittal slice, it might not look like anything in 3D. But if you go a little off center, like we did here, you can detect them. And again, insufficient space for the tongue. This patient was narrow. Tongue pushed posteriorly. Occlusion of the airway. It all is connected. This patient has kissing tonsils, they're touching. So no matter where you go, you're gonna see a little bit of, of those. No matter where you draw that sagittal slice, you're going to end up seeing that. And again, pediatrician never, kid goes to the pediatrician routinely, never detected it, never said anything. I sent them to the ENT, they removed them. Patient had a totally significant improvement in their quality of life. Again, look at the tongue posture, high vaulted palate. It's all connected, it's all connected. 
This patient's narrow. Again, you can see that sort of invagination of the uh, dorsum of the tongue. You can see that high vaulted palate. Got a little bit of hypoplasia of the right maxillary sinus. Little inflammation could be a little just uh, nasal cycling here, but this is where you start to put it all together and be able to get a paint a picture of what this patient is going through. Um, and that rolled tongue is something that you just can't see. It, if you don't have a coronal slice, you're just not going to see that in a 2D pan or a 2D sagittal set. Another example of a rolled tongue, again, that's a big diagnostic tip that that tongue doesn't have space. Your tongue shouldn't be squished in to the point that it has to fold like that. And then the tongue being posteriorly positioned, which we've seen in some of the other images as well. Um, this patient, the, the palate was high and vaulted, so the tongue ended up not having space to fill into the oral cavity and gets pushed posteriorly, occluding the oropharyngeal airway. So that's just a little bit of background. I know we went through that pretty quickly, uh, but it's just to give you the con some context on just how powerful what you can see and determine from 3D imaging is relative to what you can do with 2D imaging. Let's take a look at a couple more examples of this in practice, just to try to get a feel for how this plays out in our practice when we're seeing patients. So here's a patient comes in, airway looks pretty good overall, right? Pre-adolescent patient, just kind of look normal, looking for whether they need ortho or not. We look and it looks like pretty decent patency here of the pharyngeal airway and nothing too remarkable that we can see in our 2D images. Again, these are 2D constructs of my 3B, 3D CBCT. But we look at the cone beam and there's nothing normal about this little guy's airway. He has turbinate hypertrophy, rhinosinusitis, enlarged adenoids, enlarged tonsils. I mean, you look at this poor kid, he can't breathe. He has barely any patency in his entire nasal passageway. Now, one of the things that's disheartening about this, again, is that the pediatricians and nobody took the time to try to, to figure out that this kid couldn't breathe. But that also makes you the hero. That also makes you literally the savior for this little guy. I mean, look at the chronic inflammation this kid is experiencing. And when you ask the parents, does he have a cold? No. Is he a little stuffy? He's always stuffy. Oh, Okay, so then you start showing them this and they're just, they're in awe. They're in awe of what you were able to determine. And you don't treat this, and I don't say orthodontics or expansion or ever fixes this. We'll talk more about that in, in again, some upcoming podcasts. But the point is, I can plenty figure out that there is, oh, there, there is blockage here and there are opacities where there should be lucencies and make the appropriate referral. And for doing that and finding that, you become their hero. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, it increases the ROI indirectly in just ways you can't even imagine. Now, I know it looks kind of like he has an asymmetry. His head was just a little turned in the machine. This is actually him here. Uh, and this is just something I show them a lot of times. I put it up just to show you that there's not an asymmetry facially. But this is also cool. When you t show this to patients, they love it. I mean, it looks like they're at this, you know, they are at a super high-tech office if they're investing in this technology. But they just love seeing this stuff and it, it fascinates them. Um, but look at this guy's eyes. Look at the signs of atopy, the allergic shiners, the Denny Morgan lines, the stuff we're going to go into in more detail in the next couple podcasts, or if you've taken my courses, you're more aware of. But I mean, this guy's suffering. He's suffering. He needs to see an allergist and ENT like yesterday. So uh, we can be the ones to figure that out. Um, they did diagnose him uh, with pan sinusitis. They put him on prednisone 
and antibiotics, similar to the other patient I was referencing, ended up removing the tonsils and adenoids as well, because even with the prednisone and antibiotic, he still had uh, overgrowth of the lymphoid tissue. And mom literally said to me, he is a different kid. She said, you have changed my patient's, my son's life. He is a different kid. So first off, thank God he actually came in to see me after I had a 3D machine, because this was earlier. I'd only had my 3D for about six months. So if he had seen me Let's just say they came in, their dentist hadn't referred them at that time, and he came in eight, six months prior, seven months prior. Um, I wouldn't have known until we took a post-treatment image. I wouldn't have known about this. I would have missed it. Uh, but it all worked out, and we were able to detect it and diagnose it early. So, and as I've said, I just, I just, it just, it's disheartening to know that the pediatricians are not at all looking into this in any way, shape, or form. Here's a patient actually a few months after that, um, actually a few months after I got my ICAP flex, so a few months before that, this patient presented, uh, and it's a 10-year-old, 10-month female. And again, 2D images, uh, nothing looks, you certainly wouldn't notice anything from an airway perspective. Um, dentally, you know, the threes are a little bit maybe blocked, but nothing too remarkable. But if we look at the airway view, take a look at this. I mean, it's unbelievable. Look at the coronal slice, the rhinosinusitis, the complete obstruction essentially of the right ethmoid, a little patency on the left side. And this patient is suffering. Look at these opacities. So I, I, when I asked the patient if she had symptoms, mom interjects and said that she complains of headaches that she oftentimes is saying she has because the patient was kind of like, no. And mom's like, well, well, what about your headaches? And she's like, oh yeah, I do get headaches a lot. So I had mom take a picture of it and let and get send it to the pediatrician. They the pediatrician in this case diagnosed her with sinusitis, put her on antibiotic, and guess what? Headaches resolved. They were starting to wonder if she needed certain treatment, special treatment for migraines, putting her on migraine medication. They couldn't figure out why she was suffering from migraines. They were trying to figure out if it was hormonal, but it didn't seem to be hormonal and tie into her menstrual cycle. So they were, they were literally in the process of trying to figure this out. She comes in to see me. This was in September of 2014. I got my machine in uh, May of 2014. And I get this image. Even though I was newer at it, I knew this wasn't right. I knew that wasn't what it should look like. Turns out they figure out that she has these headaches. It turns out to be sinus related and with antibiotic <laughs> and um, uh, treatment from the uh, pediatrician, she ends up having no more problems with her headaches. And I saw the patient continually at this point for, for treatment and, and they never returned. So really, really cool what you can do. And again, you talk about building loyalty from your patients and their patient families. And then the last one we'll show here, this is a nine-year, 10-month-old male. Uh, he presents in 2D, nothing too remarkable, maybe a little uh, narrowing of the nasopharyngeal airway, but nothing that's too uh, dramatic or remarkable that would stand out. But if we look at his 3D, if we go, uh, you can see in his sagittal, uh, yeah, that tongue's maybe positioned a little posteriorly. We've got a little narrowing in the nasopharynx. But if we look at his nasal passageways, again, significant hypertrophy in the nasal passageways. That's not nasal cycling. That's different. This is uh, significant hypertrophy, which you've got some, some rhinitis there maybe with some mucus buildup indicative of usually, as we said, allergies. Um, so some little thickening in the maxillary sinuses of, of mucus. So at that point, I referred him uh, to 
the ENT and uh, he ended up placing him on Flonase and Singulair. Uh, and actually, sorry, I should say this, these were his, uh, the, nas the narrowing and the nasopharynx. You can see where he had real significant narrowing from uh, moderate, uh, moderately enlarged adenoids. So I sent to the ENT for the combination of those things. I should be clear, if he just had the nasal passageways here and didn't also have enlargement of the adenoids, I would have most likely sent to the allergist. Again, I go over that more in detail and how to differentiate that in my courses. But this would, would have gone, because of the enlargement of the adenoids as well, I started with the ENT. Put them on Flonase and Singulair, but guess what they also found? Vocal cord nodules and cysts when they did the endoscopy and put the scope down. Turns out the patient had what was going to become a very significant speech issue and they got him in speech and all because of the fact that we figured this out, got him to the ENT. I had no clue, obviously, of the vocal cord nodules, but in the ENT's diagnosis, they found that. You want to talk about a thankful parent. Uh, I mean, mom literally would go around and tell people, and she would tell me, she's like, I tell everybody, the orthodontist is the one who figured this out, and if it weren't for the orthodontist, who knows where we'd be. So do you do this for the accolades? No. But do you straighten teeth for the accolades? No. You do it because you want to make a difference in that patient's life. And when you can do this sort of thing for your patients, it transforms them, it transforms your practice, and it transforms you. You become so much more passionate about what you do and so much more appreciative of the ability you have to help people that it's so profound, I can't even really put it into words. You have to feel it to really understand it. So hopefully by seeing these cases and me showing you these cases, you can get a bit of appreciation for just what the value of 3D imaging is. And next time those discussions come up saying it's too much radiation or there's no benefit to the patient or you're not able to help the patient any more than you would with 2D, you'll have a little better perspective on that. So clearly we can see that there's a tremendous diagnostic value to 3D imaging. Now let's address our third myth, that a CBCT should only be taken after something is detected in 2D. First, as we just saw multiple examples of, one of the huge values of 3D imaging is that you see things you couldn't see in 2D. So taking it in 2D in the first place prior to 3D isn't sound reasoning in my humble opinion. Secondly, the reasoning of many of the docs who do this is that CBCT delivers too much radiation. I've never understood this mentality. So instead of taking one low-dose image at 10 to 20 microsieverts, you take a pan and a Ceph at a combined, say, 35 microsieverts, and then you take a non-low-dose CBCT because most of the machines that are hybrid machines don't have the low-dose capability as of yet, and that's called, say, like 60 microsieverts. So you're, you're pushing towards 100 microsieverts or five to 10 times the radiation of what you could have had with one single low-dose CBCT image. So in this case, taking the 2D image and then only taking a 3D image once you detect something in 2D really, for multiple reasons, isn't sound reasoning. What about our fourth myth? Increased liability exposure and, all, and the fact that all CBCT images must be read by an OMF radiologist. I'm honestly not sure why we get so freaked out about this. We are more than capable of reading a CBCT image. And if you're insecure about it, there are plenty of great CE, or CE courses out there to help you get up to speed. All you need to do is review the image, and if you see something you're unsure about, refer, just as you would with a pan and a Ceph. I've taken over 10,000 CBCT images, and I've seen a total of, sent a total of six to be read by an OMFR. 
Here are three examples of cases I've sent out just to help provide context to what I feel should be referred and I felt most comfortable referring. So here's a patient and you can see in the 3D image we've got some opacities here um, and wanted to take a closer look at those so we looked at our slices and there you go you can see them again. So we just wanted to rule out that these had anything to do with anything vascular. I thought they were probably of um, salivary glands, but I just, again, didn't alarm the patient, said, hey, look, you've got some things here. I just want to, uh, in this, these areas, I just want to have them uh, looked at. Do you mind if we send your, I'd like to send your image to an oral maxillofacial radiologist. The TC lets them know what the additional fee would be for that. It's not significant. Um, I think our fee was like 70 bucks or $80, and we charge the patient a little bit more than that just to cover our time to, to send it and read the report. But it wasn't something where we make this a big profit for, but we do cover our costs from the patient on that. And they're obviously typically fine with that. It's not out of the standard that if you go somewhere and something is diagnosed that you have to have it read elsewhere and there would be an additional fee. So uh, that came back from them. We uploaded it online. Unilateral enlargement of the right palatal tonsils demonstrating multiple tonsillus. Referral to an ENT physician is recommended to ascertain the etiology and significance of this finding. No obvious radiographic evidence of carotid artery calcification in the neck. No radiographic evidence of apical pathology involving the maxillary mandibular teeth. So again, I saw it, I referred it, and they made the appropriate, or they made the diagnosis, and then I made the appropriate referral to the ENT. So it, it's really a pretty, it, it's not, I, I, we overcomplicate this is what I'm trying to say. Here's another patient. She had huge frontal sinuses. I mean, huge. I mean, look at this. And I just, looking at that, that was out of the norm enough. And as you look at more of these images, you get a feel for what the norm is. And that was pretty far outside the norm. So I was like, you know, at that point, I think we're, we're better off getting these, getting these looked at. So getting this, a second opinion or getting an opinion from a, 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 a radiologist on that. So they came back, prominent frontal sinuses. It's a normal anatomic variant. No radiographic evidence of apical pathology involving the maxillary mandibular teeth. Mandibular retrognathia is marked uh, uh, and marked overjet. So they give even beyond what, what you had sent for. They do a full evaluation of everything when you need to send it. So if early on in your career doing this or early on in your, your journey doing this, you want to send these, err on the side of caution by all means. I mean, obviously, you either have to build a patient or you have to absorb that cost. But... If that helps you learn it, then by all means. But, but the feeling that you need to have every single one of these read by a, a radiologist just isn't, is, it, to me, I, I don't understand it. Last patient I'll show you, this she had, um, we saw in 3D that she had a lesion here. She had a lucency in the anterior mandible. It was just starting to perforate the cortical plate. If we look at our slices, um, you can see in the sagittal, the expansion that we had there, <clears throat> as well as in um, both the axial and the coronal, you could see the expansion that was occurring and the thinning of the cortical plate. So I sent this, and it came back a well-defined radiolucent lesion with delicately corticated borders in the anterior, inferior mandible at approximately the area of teeth numbers 21 to 25. The radiographic appearance is consistent with a benign cystic entity, such as a simple bone cyst, or odontogenic keratocyst, biopsy is suggested for a definitive diagnosis. So we sent it to the oral surgeon, uh, and they um, saw the patient and addressed the issue. And some people, um, and actually after this, what I would start to do, and some people advocate for this, is when you see that, you can just refer it right to the oral surgeon. Oftentimes, they're going to take it and get it read, um, so that becomes kind of preference on what you would prefer, because obviously that case was going to have to see an oral surgeon at some point anyway, uh, so you could certainly do that as well. But uh, you can see it's not that it's anything should be intimidated by or, or scared of um, to, to look at these images and 
do the majority of diagnostics yourself, but when you need assistance or help, be able to make that referral. So in my opinion, I don't feel and have never felt that I had any increased liability exposure by taking a 3D image on every single patient and not having it read by an OMFR. In fact, I felt the exact opposite since I was able to help my patients so much more than I could have otherwise if I had only taken a 2D image or two 2D images as the case may be. And last but not least, our fifth myth, which is there's no tangible ROI. I've heard many colleagues say that you can't bill or bill enough for a CBCT to cover the cost of the machine. Many of these practices actually charge nothing for records, so it seems to them like it'd be an even bigger hit. As an aside, and this is an important point, and we're going to actually do a podcast on this, but I always billed for records in addition to the treatment fee. This literally resulted and translated to hundreds of thousands of dollars additional revenue every year. Let's just do the simple math. Let's say you bill $500 for records and do 400 case starts annually. That's $200,000 a year just in records fees. We are leaving so much money on the table when we don't bill for records. And as I said, we will do a podcast on this and to go into that in more detail. In addition, I strongly believe that the AAO needs to lobby the insurance companies to get them to cover CBCT images for orthodontic purposes. Unfortunately, as of right now, CBCT isn't even listed on the AAO website as an option for diagnostic records. So I don't know that this is going to happen anytime soon. But if anyone listening happens to be on or has pull with the AAO Council on Insurance, please try to make this a priority. It will only help advance our patient care and our profession as a whole. So back to the argument that there's no ROI. Yes, it's true. There is a significant upfront cost to purchase a CBCT. And there may not be a tangible direct ROI. But as I referenced when we reviewed the patient cases a moment ago, the indirect ROI is exponential. For one, Parents tell other parents about the technology. This generates tremendous word of mouth referrals. Think to those cases I was explaining where we uncovered something unique in the patient's airway, the one girl with headaches, the other boy with the cysts on the, on the vocal cords and the nodules. Think of what, how many people they tell, right? So just the, that alone is going to increase the patients driven to your practice. Now, all of this, this being said, it does require that the doctor reviews the image with the patient and, and or parent. And as I said, we have a course on the doc website that goes into detail how to do this. Some people do get these machines and they literally only look at the 2D and 3D constructs. They don't even look at the 3D image. They only, again, if they see something out of the ordinary, then they go to the 3D to get a better view. But they don't have a standard set protocol for how to look at that 3D image. I have a standard step protocol that is quick, efficient, and effective and will help you make sure you don't miss anything, but you also are able to garner the sufficient information from the image and how to communicate that to the patient and or patient's parents. 
Number two in the ROI department is that colleagues actually respect the fact that you've invested in this superior technology and they will refer more cases to you as a result. And that's not just your dental colleagues, that's medical colleagues. Once the ENTs and allergists in the medical community knew I had this technology, they sent me tons of cases. They would refer patients to me for evaluation that would present to their office and it would be for say an airway issue or adenoids and through our communications, they actually would because they were phenomenal docs, they would look in there and they would see the mouth and say, geez, you got a lot of crowding. You know what? Go see my buddy, Dr. Mike, uh, because I think you have some, some dental and orthodontic needs that, that should be taken care of. So again, it'll grow your practice indirectly in ways you can't even imagine. On to number three, the enhanced diagnostic capabilities allow you to make sounder clinical decisions and develop more efficient and more effective treatment plans for your patients. This directly decreases treatment time, which saves money. Number four, your practice will grow as a result. My practice exploded within one to two years of implementing this technology. And I've spoken to many other docs who've had the exact same experience. So clearly, there's a significant ROI associated with the use of 3D imaging in your practice. In fact, I honestly can't think of a single other piece of technology I've ever used that has had a greater ROI than my CBCT machine. So in closing, I want to read a quote from 1959 by Cecil Steiner when he gave a lecture to the Engel Society in which he said, quote, to those of you who are not fully employing cephalometric principles in your orthodontic practice, I ask these questions. Do you really want to know what you are doing to your patients or are you afraid to find out? Do you suspect that if you did know, you might sometimes be unhappy? If you did not like what you found, would you do something about it? If the answer to these questions is no, then you do not need a cephalometer. I think we can see that you could literally apply these same words to those who question the value of CBCT today. I know it can seem like a daunting task to implement this, and I understand change is difficult, both conceptually and from an implementation perspective, but your patients deserve the best, and so do you. That concludes this episode, and always remember, you have been blessed with the ability to do great things. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to CE courses or schedule a private one-on-one -on -one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Locals for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Locals and search for the Doc community. You can also find Doc on Instagram at, at @theorthocoach. And remember, you have the power to do amazing things. Mm -hmm.